Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. I have a few announcements before I introduce my lovely guest. Always Coming Home, a disordered eating recovery support group that I will be hosting, has been postponed and will now start in the fall, likely in late September, early October. Registration is partially full, but it will remain open until the group is filled. I'm really looking forward to facilitating this space. If you want to learn more or to register, you can email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com or follow the registration link in my Instagram bio at livinginthisqueerbody. Also, Kintsuki Therapist Collective's Embodied Private Practice Cohort, which is a year-long mentorship for clinicians who are beginning or revisioning private practice with a focus on embodiment and sustainability, is now enrolling our September cohort. We will continue reading applications on a rolling basis until all available spots are filled. Applications are due by July 1st and openings are limited. Our hope is that by providing a space to support therapists that welcomes rather than disregards the parts of self that therapists too often feel afraid or ashamed to invite into the room, we will assist in activating liberatory possibilities for space holders and their clients. So if you would like to apply, please go to kintsugitherapistcollective.com and there will be a link in the show notes. And if you are thinking, wow, that is super amazing. What a cool project. I want to support the sustainability of KTC, but I'm not a mental health professional. Well, we have merch. There's a link in the show notes for fashionable KTC merchandise. When you buy a t-shirt or a hoodie, you support the sustainability of this developing business that needs a bit of a nest egg so that we can offer scholarships, send our collective members to conferences and retreats and sustain, make actionable the radical vision of this collective. We would love to see photos of you in your KTC merch. You can tag us on Instagram at Kintsugi Therapist Collective, and we would really appreciate uh, if you aren't already following us to follow. Uh, There's a list of our pretty amazing clinicians that are going through the process of the private practice cohort and um, you very well might find your next therapist by following us. So please do so. On to my guest. Mugabe Bianca is an award-winning writer who was born to Ugandan parents in Nigeria and is currently based in Kampala. Mugabe lives outside the gender binary 
and has a seizure disorder, chronic fatigue, and experiences the world in a way that some would describe as, quote, neurodivergent. In 2018, Mugabe was named one of 56 writers who has contributed to his native Ugandan, Uganda's literary heritage in the 56 years since independence by Writivism, East Africa's largest literary festival. Mugabe wants to be Jaden Smith when he grows up. In this interview, we cover so many topics, including the distraction of reading comics while disabled and bedbound, falling in love with writing, identifying access needs, living in a volatile body, toxic masculinity, why Cambodia has infrastructure that makes it a good place to have a physical disability, why haircuts can be painful for folks with sensory sensitivities, keeping a secret blog, racism in the American healthcare system, and learning how to mask disability. You can find out about all things Mugabe at www.mugabibynkya.com or at Mugabs with an S on Instagram. And I will link all of these ways to connect with Mugabe in the show notes. I really enjoyed our conversation. And now on to the interview. Mugabe, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me once again. Um, I'm a big fan, and so it's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, you have listened to some of the episodes. We were just talking beforehand about how you came across the podcast during the pandemic. And um, so you know that I usually ask folks to um, reflect on one of their earliest memories of um, being in a body or also potentially kind of receiving messaging about what it means to have a body. So wherever you kind of wanna go with that. All right, Uh, so one of my earliest memories of being in a body is honestly, uh, sensory overload, um, mm. which is something that I didn't recognize at the time because I mean, I was a child and I <laughs> did not have the word, the vocabulary, sensory overload, or the terminology or the knowledge um, to like, you know, um, realize that I was neurodivergent. Um, that came far later into adulthood. And like none of my like family or friends had that um, like knowledge or terminology either. Um, mm. But I just remember being very, very overwhelmed, especially by haircuts. I remember hating haircuts with a passion. Um, And the like buzzing sound of like the like uh, barber's clippers, like it makes so much noise. And it like drove me up the wall. And I was always crying every single haircut that I would get and my I went to go get my haircuts with my brothers and my father 
And they would always be like, oh, Mugabe, why are you so sensitive? Why are you such a sissy? Why are you like, you know, like um, mm. crying all the time? And for me, like, I didn't know how to communicate to them, like how much it hurt me um, because I didn't understand how come it hurt me so much more than them because they were perfectly comfortable sitting in the barber's chair and getting the haircut. But for me, it was a nightmare. Um, I dreaded it. Um, I remember one time like cutting my own hair with um, a pair of scissors and my parents coming back home and me telling them that a ghost did it. And that was, <laughs> that was a lie. Uh, but like, it was the lie that like I leaned into and like, I like said it's like, I like kept the lie going so long that like I ended up believing the lie myself. Um, and then my parents started freaking out and believing the lie as well. But like, come to think of it in hindsight, it was just a way to get out of getting a haircut, you know? Um, because like, I love my hair. And now that I'm losing it, thanks to male pattern baldness, um, it's like, I always loved growing it out. And I never saw why there was that pressure, um, especially on me um, as someone who was um, labeled as a boy um, to always get my hair cut regularly in order to look um acceptable in society's eyes that sensory overload from getting a haircut is one of my first like memories of inhabiting my body and my strong hatred towards haircuts and towards barbers and it took a long time for me to not stop crying while getting a haircut um and eventually i learned that that like is masking you know like i learned how to mask and i learned how to um like push through it um, but it's never been experience that I ever have looked forward to or that I've ever enjoyed in, in, in the slightest. Um, and that sensory overload extended towards like crowds of people. Cause I remember like when I was a kid, I would always clutch on to like my, my older sister, Tina, like her t-shirt. I would like clutch onto like the hem of her t-shirt and like grab it with like all of my strength. Um, whenever we were in a crowded place, because I was always just like terrified of like all the like sensory overload of a crowd, you know, or when like people came over to the house that I didn't really know, um, or, um, like just unfamiliar environments, I was always clutching onto people's, um, hems of their shirts and some of them would get annoyed with me. It's all these behaviors that in hindsight I've realized is, is neurodivergence. Yeah. But like at the time I didn't have words for it and I just was labeled as a sensitive. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. This, um, <laughs> the story about the ghost, because it, I mean, it just is, you're so like creative. Um, I mean, I think all children, who need to be or often very creative in their um, coping strategies. And, but I think it's just, it's a very, um, it's very evocative of like how, how much you had to make sense of something that no one was helping you to make sense of. 
and I wonder, I, I guess I just had this thought and I don't, it, I mean, this is jumping very far ahead, but I, I wonder how much that, um, that kind of like telling stories about your experience is led you to writing and, and, and telling stories through writing um, and performing. You know, like I fell in love with writing at a very, very early age. Um, mm -hmm. I fell in love with writing because I come from a family of readers. Um, and I, like my, both my parents and all of my older siblings um, were all very, very avid readers growing up. And I remember um, like they would like spend weekends like curled up on the couch just reading. And I was always so fascinated by like, what was this reading thing that it could like, you know, like engross people for like hours at a time. Um, and I always like wanted to play with them because like um, I was not old enough to like be able to read, but they were like, no, we're not playing with you, we're reading. And I was like, <laughs> if reading is better than playing, then reading must be like the greatest thing ever. Cause in my mind at that time, as a childhood, like playing was like the greatest thing ever, you know? Right. Um, and so I was like, so I asked my mom to teach me how to read and she did. And then I discovered that like reading was like the greatest thing ever. And cause like you can fall into all these worlds and discover so much about um, yourself, about the world at large, about um fantastical worlds um mm. that reflect on the world at large mm -hmm. um and just losing yourself into a story has become a major theme throughout my life uh and it's become a coping mechanism as i've like developed my chronic pain disorder and after my strokes and everything like for the past two years i've been bedbound i've just been losing myself in comics and those because conventional books hadn't been accessible to me because of my aphasia but those comics, like I was able to lose myself into those stories and escape the world, you know, and escape my circumstances and escape um, my pain. Um, um, not like fully escape, you know, cause it's always there, but like it provides mm -hmm. like a distraction and a buffer. Um, and so stories have always been very important to me um, as an escape, um, as a form of like meditation, as a, form of therapy um and with the reading came writing actually pretty soon after because once I learned how to read I started writing uh, like my own stories and like my own comic strips and my own poetry and mm -hmm. I'd keep that very very private and I didn't really share publicly any writing that I had written um apart from like school poetry anthologies and stuff like that um where like you know like I'm selected for like a school poetry anthology and I get up there and read and I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper so I did some writing for them as well um but mm -hmm. I was still very private with my like uh personal writing um up until I started blogging in 2016 that was when I was like now I'm like finally like because I kept a secret blog for the longest time actually um, which was like completely secret from the world. Like nobody knew about it. It was just for me to post my poetry on there and to like, um, just like share it with like, um, just like 
basically the like two people who like stumbled across it you know <laughs> um mm-hmm. because i wasn't promoting it in any way whatsoever I, I wasn't even putting it under my own name um i just had like i just wanted a place to share my poetry as i developed um as a writer and i wasn't comfortable doing that on a public stage uh because even when i was performing like during that secret blog stage of my life when I was performing like at like open mics and stuff, I wouldn't invite my friends because I didn't want them to come and see me because uh, I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I was ready. Um, and they would always complain to me and then like be like, oh, like we saw you like um, after the fact that you were performing, like, why didn't you tell us? And I was like, how, like, how do I explain to them that like I'm uncomfortable like performing like with them watching me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But um over time um and also because i had like i have massive stage fright um and i've always had that um but like people who see me perform they don't understand that because i mean i learned a trick when i was i was the head boy of my um high school um which you'll be familiar with if you've read the harry potter books it's sort of like school president um and during the, there's like a speech round where everybody's supposed to give their speeches. And I was terrified because I was very, very like shy um, and uh, an introvert, which a lot of people who know me now will be like, they can't believe that I'm an introvert because I learned how to like play by extroverts rules and how to talk to people. Oh, uh, yeah. But that took some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people think I'm an extrovert when I'm actually not because I'm perfectly comfortable like spending all my time, large time, large, like most of my time is spent by myself and mm. I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, I don't need the other people to like get the energy from. At that head boy um, speech, I, I learned a little trick, which funnily enough, I learned that Tom Holland also uses hmm. um, the actor, uh, because I saw an interview he was doing where he said that all the emotions that you get uh, when you're afraid, the anxiety, the butterflies in your stomach, the palms are sweaty, the knees weak, arms are heavy, the whole Eminem mom spaghetti, you know? Um, All of that um, are the same physical reactions that you get with being really excited about something. And so if you can like channel that fear into confidence and into excitement and like trick your body into thinking that it's really excited instead of it's terrified. Um, Then you get on stage and you perform and you like are like overtaken by like this excitement and this confidence and that only helps the performance or the speech or whatever it is that you're doing. And once I discovered that during like my head boy, um, uh, like speeches, like I like really, really fell in love with like, uh, speeches performing and in front of stages. And, um, I continued that, um, onward and it's, it's, yeah, it's been a blessing, honestly. Mm. Do you, do you miss performing? I do. I do. Um, I miss it. Um, although, um, I find that like, I'm still able to perform virtually. Um, and that is different than performing on, on a stage. Um, but I still get the same thing out of it. 
that I did when I was on a stage because I did this workshop um, on Wednesday for uh, called Alternative Explanations, Disability in African Arts, where a bunch of academics and African artists uh, were invited to give presentations. And I performed um, um, an unreleased um, uh, piece that I'm working on. Um, and I got like um, the same rush that I get from being on stage um, that I got through being performing virtually on the screen um, on Wednesday. And I got great feedback from uh, everybody who was there, which was always, you know, um, great to hear. And so I feel like the virtual stage, I feel like a lot of people like tried to like make the switch, like to be like virtual can be a seamless switch from live and it's not it's different. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, it's not, um, but it's more accessible. Um, yeah which is great for people like me. Um, and um, I had another virtual performance actually earlier this month, which, which went great. And so the virtual performances um, make me miss performing less, although I still do miss being like on a live stage and getting that like feedback from a live audience. Um, and I don't know when I'll be able to do that again because my health has been very volatile these past couple of years. And, um, I, the last time I was on a stage was February of 2020, um, like oh, a live wow. stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when that will happen next. Um, but the virtual can keep me going for the meantime. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. No, it's good to hear that. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about, um, what has Ooh. been going on over the past couple of years i mean this it it sounds like some of your um more difficult like health challenges have been happening just happening to coincide with a global pandemic so um amongst many other things that are going on in the world and it sounds like you're you know just from from what you and i have talked about that the the kind of level of disruption in your life in terms of you know having to move and and just all of that like whatever you want to talk about with that but you know kind of how that has all felt for you to um to kind of have all of these things happening at once and to try to stay um you know, as you and I were kind of talking about beforehand, try to stay with your body and with what it it needs, um, even though it sounds like it has been, as you said, volatile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's been a very, very volatile and frustrating past two years. Um, mm -hmm. In March of 2020, um, I had a flare uh, which like normally, like my flares, like, I mean, they vary in terms of like the amount of time that they um, take, like at the peak of my health, I'd have a flare for maybe a day and then I'd be bounced back by the next day. Um, and then um, it, the flare is slowly increased in time 
um, which I noticed happened with the more I was pushing myself. Um, but the reason that I was pushing myself was all the doctors and all my family and all my friends and everybody kept on telling me, push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, because that was all the messaging that I was getting. And because I'm a type A workaholic overachiever, mm. I naturally wanted to push myself. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that with my first, so I've had three strokes and with the first one, which happened when I was nine, pushing myself helped. Um, because, um, I was going through physical therapy, the right side of my body was completely paralyzed and pushing myself through physical therapy. That's what got me to be able to walk again. That's what got me to be able to write again. That's what got me to be able to like, um, uh, eat again, you know, brush my teeth, all these basic tasks, like pushing myself helped. And so with strokes two and three, which happened when I was 22, I figured if I do the same thing as happened with stroke one, the same result will happen and it'll help. Um, but unfortunately that was not the case and mm -hmm. pushing myself, um, ended up hurting me more than helping. And the flares just kept on getting longer and longer. Um, and like, until like when I was on tour, like I would like tour, like have a seizure, um, crash, then have to wake up and go do a show have another seizure crash, go wake up, go do another show and just push, push, push up until the point where like a couple months later, like I would just, my body would shut down for months at a time. Um, and it got so bad um, in 2019 that I was supposed to have the last leg of my tour and ended up, ended up canceling like the majority of 70% of my shows because I just crashed so hard uh, for like three months and I was having seizures every day. I couldn't even like process text enough to type. I was in so much pain um, and so fatigued and I could, couldn't leave the house. Um, and it was very, very frustrating to deal with because I didn't know what I was supposed to do because I wanted to be able to do what I love. Um, but my body was telling me um, that it couldn't handle that. Um, and I didn't know how to reconcile that because I thought that maybe if I put more spacing in between my tour dates and put more relaxation time, that would help, but that didn't. Um, and then when it came to 2020, um, I just crashed and I crashed hard. And from March of 2020 up till March of 2022, um, I um, have been like in a permanent, basically two-year flare, the ridiculous pain levels, um, very, very uh, sensory overload. Um, and I live in a very, very noisy environment, which does not help. Um, and so the overload was just like overwhelming at most times. Um, and I was having multiple seizures a day um, at the barest mental or physical exertion. Um, I could barely process texts for like months at a time. I'd like log on to like social media and like reply to like all missed messages once every like four months. And then mm. I'd crash um, and I'd have a seizure from the slightest thing like um, just like doing like 
walking more than I should have um, because I could walk to the bathroom and back at the very least. But like everybody around me, especially kept on telling me like, oh, like, why are you just in bed? And I'm like, this is not a choice, you know, mm-hmm. like I like I'm not like choosing this. And they were like, oh, but why don't you walk outside and get some sunshine? And I'm like, do you know what's going to happen to my body if I do that? Because you're not the person who has to pick up the pieces. I am. And I don't understand why so many people in my life, they brought like healers to try and like heal me. And I was just like checked out and just meditating and pretending like I was asleep because this woman was literally slamming my head against the pillow and chasing the devil out of me because clearly I am cursed because I have an illness that the doctors can't figure out. And I'm like, why are you putting so much energy into all of these healers and these prophets and these people that you think can magically heal me? And why don't you put more effort into just listening to me and listening to what my body needs and what my body's limitations are? Because I had been asking for the bare minimum, um, different lighting around the house so that I can function better because the harsh fluorescent lights are not um, those like set off my like seizures and uh, spasms because yeah. of the sensory overload. And it took me, I mean, I, I asked for that for two years and I never, it, 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 it never, there was no change. It took my sister coming in and physically like changing every light bulb in the house for the change to actually happen because my sister, God bless her, Tina, um, I mentioned her um, a lot throughout my book, Dear Philomena, because she's like, being like one of the few people who like understands what it means to accommodate someone despite not going through what you're what I'm going through Mm -hmm. and I don't understand why it's so hard for so many people to understand that because I was suffering for two years with the lights and with the noise and Tina also gifted me some noise canceling headphones which had been a godsend Mm. because now I can at least drown out everything uh, with some music, but like, it's like, it's like, I, I was just like shouting at the rooftops and nobody was hearing me. They just kept on telling me, Oh, go outside, get some vitamin D, like a uh, walk, like, um, um, like be more active. You'll get better. And it's like, I'm not going to magically get better by going outside. That's only going to make me worse, but nobody's willing to listen to me. And that, that, that's, that was honestly the most frustrating part about these past two years, because I was just waiting out um, the pandemic so that I could get access to the healthcare that I needed, because every doctor in Uganda that I consulted with over these past two years had either told me that they were too busy um, to uh, really um, uh, uh, treat me, um, or, they were, or, they, or that my case was too complicated and they didn't have time for me. Um, which is very dismissive, uh, but which is what I've come to ex- expect from doctors because yes. I've had terrible experiences with pretty much like 99% of doctors that I've seen in my life. Um, and so I was just, my goal was to go to this hospital in Thailand that did a bunch of the follow-up care um, after my first stroke because uh, we were living in Cambodia at the time. Um, and my goal was to go to this hospital and hopefully get um, better medication and a, phys- and a graded physical therapy regimen so that I could 
um, get to a better health state, which is what I did and which is what worked. Um, but everybody around me was kept on telling me for these past two years um, to do all these things that did not help. Um, I was just reading comics and watching TV to distract myself from the pain and the seizures and the spasms because that was my only option while I was waiting uh, to get the vaccine in my system um, and to for travel to open up so that we could go to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been a very, very frustrating uh, past two years. Um, and it's like now that like I was like proven right, there's been no like acknowledgement of like the fact that like everything that everybody was recommending me and everything that everybody did to me during these past two years was wrong. Mm. And that, that hurts. Yeah. 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 It sounds like, I mean, it's, I'm so sorry to hear that you went through this and I also, and that you're going through this and also it's, you know, fortunately not, an uncommon, like, I guess the thread of the story that feels really common is the sort of lack of a, of just willingness to listen to a person who is suffering in a way that is confusing, maybe, you know, very well might be confusing to more able-bodied, the able-bodied world, whatever, you know, and that there's, that it sounds like you're, you know, maybe your siblings, you mentioned your brother earlier and mm-hmm. your sister, you know, kind of have come into an understanding of, to a certain extent, at least understanding how these particular accommodations actually can just certainly not heal you like a kind of a healer would come in and heal you, but that they they really, the accommodations really do, um, improve your quality of life in, in a substantial way. Um, and it's so, it sounds like it's just so confusing. Like what is the, I mean, we could talk about this endlessly, right? I mean, it's just like, it's ableism, it's all sorts of things, but you know, I guess it's, it's also heartening to hear that you have found at least even though you haven't found a lot of validation around it, you have been able to access some kind of very particular sources of support that make your life feel a little bit more manageable. Definitely. And I'm forever grateful to my siblings, especially my sister Tina and my brother Victor, because um, Tina is the person who took me in after my two strokes and um that that was when i was like really going through it and like these past two years as volatile and like um frustrating as they've been um there was always that like i never let myself get to the depths of depression that i did um after my first two strokes because i knew that i had been through worse and i knew that i had got through it and i knew how i got through it and i knew that if i just waited until thailand um, I could get to a better health state. And I knew that I was, it was going to be a long wait, but I know how to distract myself. I know how to lose myself in the stories, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. through TV and through comics. 
um because books weren't accessible to me well audiobooks are but that mm -hmm. depends on the narrator because i'm picky uh oh some gosh. narrators like <laughs> they ruin a story horses, yeah, they, they don't do it for me um but um like i was when i was a tina um she was amazing and like super accommodating and like she was fighting with the doctors um for me and righteously angry at the doctors for me um and the same thing when i moved in with my brother victor um he is, is an amazing caretaker he um accommodates me he adjusts um uh like things around for me uh, mm -hmm. when like sometimes i can't verbalize after a seizure and i came outside and i was like i can't i mean i was like communicating through like sign language not like literal sign language but like you know like gesture um, yeah yeah gesture yeah um that like i can't communicate but like i still want to be in community with people um and uh and so somebody asked me a question and i gestured to them and they were like what are you doing and victor was like he can't talk right now but he just wants to hang out and then everybody was like super awkward around it but like victor helped make that less awkward you know um and i mean being the taurus being the protector that he is um he has always been like accommodating and understanding um and tina has always tina's a cancer um and she's always been compassionate and caring um and accommodating in ways that i find a lot of other people struggle with and for me i don't understand necessarily why that why that struggle is so severe because for example, now that like I've come back and like I'm in a better health state than I was during the past two years. And like me being in that poor health state is not a like thing, it's not like a, a like single occurrence because I was on a podcast called No End in Sight um, with Brianne Venice, who's a chronically ill podcaster who interviews a bunch of different people with chronic illnesses and disabilities. And she was telling me that she, and a lot of other people um, in her network um, developed um, a worsening of their symptoms uh, around the same time that the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed like it was a worldwide thing where like different disabled people, different chronic ill people were going through flares during the pandemic. Uh, and I'm not sure what that's about. I'm not sure if that was like our bodies trying to protect us um mm. or what um but it's just like it's frustrating for me um that like now that like i'm able to like be more uh mobile um and say like i can like go and chill in the living room more um which is something that's been demanded of me uh over the past two years why why aren't you in the living room why are you locked away in the bedroom and it's like because in the bedroom it's dark and i can control the lighting uh, and because the bedroom was the only place in the house with the accessible lighting, uh, with the non-fluorescent lighting, mm -hmm. though not the one that hurts me. Um, and so now that the whole house is lit up with the accessible lighting, I can go to the living room more. And it's immediately become, praise God, thank God, God healed Mugabe. And it's like, no, like you are like completely like dismissing the hard work that tina put in to make this house accessible for me um tina like 
designed and is now um, like I'm gonna try to put up a GoFundMe to pay for the construction costs of an accessible bathroom, which will help me significantly as well. Um, the, the lighting um, was all Tina. Um, the fighting with the doctors until we could finally get a medication that suppressed my seizures because we're in that hospital for five weeks and the doctors kept on going back and forth with us because I was complicated and they didn't understand me. And that was all Tina and that was all me. And um, yeah, it's instead it just becomes praise God, praise God, God has healed Mugabe. When it's like, why don't you recognize the hard work that Tina and I have put into this? Tina had to take weeks off work in order to come to the hospital to fight for my case on my behalf. And that is something that I don't take lightly. And that's something that I appreciate, um, like to the moon and back. But it's something that is constantly attributed towards God, which like frustrates me to no end. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like just so many systemic failures that you've been and that you and many other chronically ill and disabled people like have to navigate. And there's no acknowledgement of that. Um, It sounds or there's very little acknowledgement, I guess, of that in your life and, and it in within the communities or family systems that you, you circulate in. And I, and I don't, I think that that it's certainly not uncommon at all, but I wonder, you know, what you have found, you know, you've lived in a a lot of different places um, Mm -hmm. and what you have found in terms of maybe what it's been like to advocate for accommodations and and quality of life um and just healthcare um in the different places that you've lived um and how you ended up maybe you know also like you're living in Uganda right now and it sounds like it's somewhat i don't know if it's permanent but it it sounds like it's a somewhat you know you're going to be there for a while or you're mm-hmm. you, um and you know to what extent that has been a choice or a necessity um because i think choice is a really like it's kind of uh an important question that gets lost a lot in this navigating of systems of care that are, are failing yeah uh, being in Uganda right now is a necessity, definitely not a choice. Because I'm, 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 I'm at my mom's house because um, I uh, can't, because uh, my disabilities, I can't work full time and I can't make enough to like have my own place or like keep up the upkeep of independent living. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I need um, like assistance. Um, and um, my mom's right now uh, the uh, person in Uganda who uh, is willing and able to provide that to me. And so it's, um, not a choice. Um, if I could have, because I mean, me and my mom get into a lot of arguments over a lot of the things that I've discussed, um, uh, throughout in the past. Um, and so if I could have a choice, I would not, uh, be living here, but, um, I don't really have a choice in the matter, um, at the moment. Um, and so it's very much a necessity, 
um, out of uh, financial uh, circumstances yeah. and out of um, like not being able to independently um, uh, like I can like, you know, like take care of myself, um, but like cooking is very difficult. Um, uh, cleaning is very difficult. Um, a lot of like the household day to day tasks um, like um, would be um, I feel like too much on my body with the amount of um, exertion, like limits that I have right now. Um, right. Um, and so it's a necessity for now. Um, but it's one that's like, um, I mean, it's weather wise, it's ideal because we don't have uh, bad winters because uh, winters affect me really terribly health wise. Um, and so it's really only the rain that affects me health wise. Um, and so rainy seasons come um, and those affect me. Uh, but rainy rain, I feel like affects me less than uh, the winter does. Um, and so, so when uh, you were in Toronto, ideal. yeah, Toronto, every single winter, I had like a massive flare, um, which was um, really severe and mm -hmm. knocked me out of commission for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of uh, the places that I've moved around, um, I will move around a lot because of my dad's job. My dad worked for the United uh the UNDP and the United Nations Development Program okay. um and so every three or four years um in his position they move the person and their family to a different country um and so that's why um I move around uh, that's why I grew up moving around a lot um and in terms of the access to healthcare, I mean before nine I wasn't disabled and so I didn't really have much of a need for um, access to healthcare or um, really accessibility issues. I had my neurodivergence that wasn't, you know, picked right. up on. Um, but like outside of that, um, uh, I didn't really um, like deal with any really major um, illnesses. Um, and when we were nine, moved to Cambodia, which was actually a great place to be disabled um, hmm. because they had. Um, a lot of um, uh, from the impact of the uh, Vietnam War and the Khmer Rouge, uh, they had a lot of landmines spread out all across the country. Mm. And as a result of that, unfortunately, um, a lot of people accidentally stepped on the landmines, which means they have a lot of amputees across the country, um, which means it has it, it had it, um, and probably still does have an excellent infrastructure in place for mm. people with uh, disabilities because of the large amount of amputees due to the landmines. Um, and so like Cambodia was like where I got put on my muscle relaxant for the first time, which helps with my spasticity for my physical therapist. Um, it was where I got like fitted for like my leg brace, which helped with my spasticity, my arm brace. Um, and like the care that I got there through my physical therapy was like the peak of like um, care that I've received, honestly in my life. Um, and I think it's largely as a result of all of the landmines and all the amputees um, wow. just created an infrastructure that um, really helped um, the disabled community. And there was like a very, very visible presence of like disabled people, like like mm -hmm. just like walking down the street, you know? And mm -hmm. so it also helped me like not feel as alone, um, which helps. Um, 
and um then Great. i moved back to uganda after cambodia and that was i continued my physical therapy and that was like when i was like trying to like i had a lot of internalized ableism so i was trying to like pass as able-bodied um and because of my physical therapy i got to the point where i could um like i walked with a slight limp and people would always like be like what's up with your hand and what's up with your leg and that was always like frustrating to deal with as well as like just like like i don't know like because like i like um like ha have my like own like um uh gender identity that falls beyond uh the binary um mm -hmm. But um, I was raised as a boy, and so much of boyhood is centered around uh, physicality and athleticism. Mm. Um, and because I wasn't able to be uh, as physical or as athletic, I was very much put in the category of like, not one of us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and um, also like, middle school to like high school is where the shift happens where like instead of like all being like happy and like friends and like just like all like like I feel like elementary school like towards the latter years it starts coming in as well but like the toxic masculinity starts creeping in yeah. um like when my father died I remember all of my uncles and my aunts telling me to be strong and not to cry and to be strong for my mother and I was like, why are you telling a 13 year old mm. child um, not to cry when his father just died? Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, but that was the messaging that I was getting. Um, and from school, it was a lot of messaging of like women as conquest, you know, um, uh, from my peers um, and a lot of messaging of me as being strange because i was not actively dating um and i was not actively um trying to um and then i got a full scholarship to the university of kansas um where i was at like my peak of like able-bodied passing but I would, I was still um, like trying to be as active as I physically could because my body could finally like handle things um, that it couldn't before. And so Whoa. I was running, um, I was um, very um, physically active um, and I was like doing like the most and running on a hundred cylinders, working part-time, involved in extracurriculars, heavy course load, double major. And I loved it because I love doing things. Um, <laughs> and my healthcare there um, was all right because things were like stabilizing health-wise. Yeah. Um, and so I got like a, a checkup, like um, I think twice when I was there. And they said that like uh, everything with my brain was the same. And if I stay on the same medication, I should be the same. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm good to go. And like, very, very like excited and like taking in life, like to, to like um, the fullest because I finally could for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I moved to Michigan on a fellowship. And then the two strokes happened. And that severely uh, limited my um, uh, mobility and gave me a chronic pain condition, a seizure disorder, chronic fatigue. And um, I moved in with my sister, Tina, who I mentioned before, um, who helped um, take care of me uh, while we were going from doctor to doctor to doctor to figure things out. And that was where I first encountered the racism within the American uh, healthcare system. Uh, Because prior to that, when I'd just been going from my regular doctor's checkups, um, there wasn't any racial element um, really um, involved. But um, with this, because it was something that was complicated mm-hmm. and, it was, and because it was a pain condition, they automatically labeled me as a drug seeker because all black people are drug seekers. Yeah. Um, and it took me like eight months to see my first black doctor who, when he first saw me, he shook his head and he said, these white doctors think we're all drug seekers. I'm so sorry that they put you through this. Mm. And I was like, I, I appreciate you, but like there also need to be more of you. Because it's been like eight months of me going from white doctor to white doctor and them giving me nothing. Um, And so, but like, I still haven't properly found a way to medicate um, in terms of like lessening the pain. Um, But like, I was grateful for the black doctor to explore options that hadn't been explored before by the white doctors uh, because they all thought I was a drug seeker. Um, Right. Just like some curiosity, like, let's try to figure this out rather than making these assumptions. Like even just that basic curiosity is, I mean, it, it goes a long way. It also should be a given, but it, it really does. Seems like it does go a long way. Um, exactly. Mm, oh God. I mean, we could probably talk for talk and commiserate. Um, <laughs> a long time it's really i feel just really grateful to you for um being able or being willing to to talk about some of these different um encounters with the medical healthcare system and infrastructure in different countries and and different places um because i i don't think that that uh more able-bodied and and non-chronically ill folks really understand and and we've barely even scratched the surface you and I in terms of the the conversations around this um but mm-hmm. it just feels really important and I appreciate that your willingness to kind of to narrate some of this um and I also hate hearing a lot of these stories because it's just, it's so, it, it takes such a toll. Um, and I guess that's, you know, one of the things I want to, you know, before we switch topics and not switch topics, because I guess it's all related, but start talk about your book. Um, I guess I just, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about sort of before the interview is, is the way in which we both have because of these you know i'm a white person i'm have a completely different experience in the the american medical system um nonetheless very frustrating dismissive and complicated um 
as a chronically ill person, but mm-hmm. I guess one of the things you and I do have in, in common that we talked about is just the kind of the way in which taking on our own chronic health struggles, taking it upon ourselves to sort of sort out and figure out what works for us and what doesn't work and how that has sort of affected how other people in our life has impacted other people in our life in, in a way that, you know, we, I think you and I both have gone through periods of time. It sounds like where we performed and enjoyed like a kind of level of, you know, uh, competency in performing ableism, you know, being like being able-bodied and, Mm -hmm. um, and then there is the, the kind of disappointment and grief that, that we experience within ourselves when there's a, a flare or whatever. And it, it's also hard when that that disappointment and grief that we're experiencing is also kind of reflected back by other people. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's a really long-winded sort of observation, and I'm not really sure what else, like what I'm asking, but I just, I'm curious what what you've been sort of sorting through with your own grief and also your own kind of experience of how the things that really have work you figured out that do work for you in terms of pacing and, and caring for yourself um, are still not understood or how they're related to by the people in your life or the, or not just the people, but the, the kind of like the systems at, at large, you know, um, yeah yeah definitely um thank you for that question um i mean it's a difficult road to navigate because like i've been asked by people before like while i was on tour one of my friends asked me he was like yeah so this tour thing is great and all but like what are you gonna do like like work-wise like like you can't tour forever and i looked at him and in the back of my mind i'm like you realize that like i can't physically can't hold down a full-time job but like then I'm like he doesn't realize this you know mm-hmm. um and so it's like how do I even have this conversation with somebody who has no idea um what um my life is like and that's honestly one of the reasons why I wrote the book just like to like mm. help especially my family and friends like what it's actually like to live in a body like this and how much pain and frustration and anger and depression and um like how volatile it is because people like especially when they see me um out and about um they assume because they don't think that pain the pain is a 24 7 thing when it is like the only time i'm not in pain is when i'm asleep and when I'm asleep is like some of the greatest times of my life, because like in my dreams, I'm out and about, I'm doing things, I'm not in pain. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, mm-hmm. 
I'm living the life that I want to lead, but I can't. Um, and people, when they see me physically like talking to them and being able to like hold a conversation and being able to like walk around and do things for myself, they assume, oh, the pain must not be there or it must not be that bad um, yeah. because you're able to do things when that's not the case. The pain is always there and it's always pretty bad. Um, I'm just like able to like, I mean, it's been seven years of this now and I've learned how to best to manage it. Um, and managing it is the best that I can do. Like I can't overcome it because a lot of people are like disappointed in the fact that like, they're like, they can't wrap their minds around being in pain 24 seven because it's something that they've never experienced, first of all. Mm -hmm. Um, and beyond that, they struggle with the fact that somebody that they care about is in pain 24 seven and they can't do anything about it. And so I think that's where a lot of those well-meaning, but ultimately invalidating suggestions come from because that's them trying to like, be like, okay, I'm going to try to like help or fix, but like one thing that frustrates me is that all these suggestions never come with the actual uh, remedy attached, you know, like, it's always like, oh, have you tried yoga? Instead of, I paid for four yoga sessions for you. So Mm. you can go try it and see (laughs) if it works for you, you know? Yes. Like, (laughs) if you're going to suggest it, pay for it. (laughs) Like, don't suggest to me black tea tree oil if you're not going to ship me a box. Like, <laughs> that's what frustrates me so much is like all the onus is put on me to then go and find this thing and then be disappointed as yet again, it doesn't work. When it's mm-hmm. like, if you really cared, why don't you put in the money? Mm-hmm. I, that is, yes, 100%. 100%. Let's talk about your book because I really, I do really want to hear about it and I want folks to hear about it. Um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the, the book as a, as it is and what it kind of means to you um, to have written and published it. Sure thing. Um, so the book um, is called Dear Philomena. Um, a lot of people pronounce it Philomena, and I think that's like a potato potato thing, because like I think it depends on where you're from. Um, yeah, I- I've heard it say both ways, but I grew up saying Philomena, um, and um, I-, I like to call it the story of two strokes, one boy, one girl, and a whole lot of magical realism, um, because um, basically when I was in my mother's womb, um, the doctors uh, told my mother to expect a baby girl. Um, and so she chose the name Philomena for that baby girl. And then um, I'm born and I'm assigned uh, male at birth. Mm. Um, but my mother's told me the story my whole life of Philomena is the person who you're supposed to be. And so um, during that year of my life, 2015, after the two strokes, when I was living with Tina and going through it emotionally, going from doctor to doctor to doctor, getting worse health wise. Nothing was really working. I didn't really see a pathway out. Um, and I didn't really know like 
whether I was going to live or not, because a lot of the, a lot of the doctors told me that I wasn't going to make it to C2016. Um, mm. I realized that like, I had always had this dream of being a author or a writer. And I had my like impending death sentence looming and I hadn't achieved that dream. And so I, f- I figured I might as well try my best to um, achieve the dream while I had like some limited time left on this earth, um, which I ended up, um, spoiler alert, I didn't die. Um, <laughs> uh, but the book was basically, it, it, it started off as me. I started when I was like in like the depths of my depression, I started writing these letters to Philomena, uh, to the woman who I was supposed to be. Um, and these letters were just me like venting to her, um, telling her about my life, um, and just like getting like a lot of stuff off my chest. Um, uh, some stuff that I'd opened up to family and friends about and some stuff that I'd not. Mm -hmm. Um, and those letters expanded into a series of conversations. And so the book reads back and forth, like text messages with like some diary entries and social media posts interspersed within them. Um, And I really like that like constrained form of storytelling because I find like anytime I like constrain myself in my art, um, it leads to like wild and like unpredictable, but like beautiful results. Mm -hmm. Um, And trying to tell a whole story through with dialogue um, was very, very difficult. but I like the challenge and it led to um, the book, which um, has done well for itself. Um, and the book is basically the story of that year of my life that I was supposed to die, but somehow I managed to live through. Mm-hmm. And it's told through conversations between myself, Mugabe, and Philomena, the woman who I was supposed to be. Yeah. It's, I mean, I haven't, I have not read it yet. I've read about it. I've seen you um, read parts of it uh, over on, on video and I'm really looking forward to reading it. And it's just, it's a really, it's like a beautiful idea and uh, sounds like a really complicated, um, just a, a beautiful, complicated idea. Um, just from the jump. And I think what, what really strikes me is that you dive into this idea of just from the start, it's, it's really about the complexity of kind of being born in a body that is (laughs) in and of itself kind of wild. And you're really addressing like all of just from the beginning, you're addressing like all of the sort of social expectations and, um, kind of, you know, gender and ableist notions around what it means to kind of bring a being into this world, what, what is embedded in that. And I think, I think that that, those are, those are kind of implicit or implied, um, they're implicit conversations that never really are, or very rarely are made explicit. Um, and so I think that's, that's something that I really, I love about the idea of this, this book, um, and the project itself. Um, exactly. And I'd just like to add that one thing that was, uh, that I loved about it was 
because like I identify gender wise outside of the binary and um, like it was an interesting thought experiment for me to process what would life have been like if I was assigned female at birth and if I was given that name Philomena and how different my life would have been compared to what it is now because mm -hmm. of all the societal um, forces that shape being raised as a uh, boy versus being raised as a girl versus being raised as something outside the binary versus, you know? Um, yeah. And so like, that was like a really, really, really great part about the experience for me. And it really um, helped me like affirm and um, come to terms with uh, my gender identity through the writing process as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about where people can find out about your work. How can people get in touch with you and follow, follow your work? People can get in touch with me and follow my work via my website. Mm -hmm. uh, that is www.mugabibienkia.com. That's M-U-G-A-B-I-B-Y-E-N-K-Y-A.com. On that website, you'll see links to buy the ebook and the paperback for Dear Philomena. And you'll have as well links to all um, press um, interviews that I've done. Uh, once this goes live, that'll be up there as well. And <laughs> you'll have, <laughs> I, I did an interview yesterday, um, actually. Oh, wow. Where, yeah. Um, and um, I mentioned the same thing. And uh, the interviewer said, uh, then that means that we'll have joined the Mugabe Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, so you'll have joined it too soon enough. Um, Great. And I also have a list of all my publications, um, everything that I've written, um, like all my essays. Uh, I write essays and comics and uh, poetry. Um, uh, they're all across the internet and they're linked all on my website. And my social media handles are, my Instagram is Mugabs, M-U-G-A-B-S. Follow me on there. And my Twitter is at Mugabsb, M-U-G-A-B-S-B. Follow me on there. And my Facebook is at Mugabsb, M-U-G-A-B-S-B as well. Follow me on there as well. Amazing. Love it. I want everyone to have an opportunity to connect with you. And you have many, many platforms for which folks can do so, um, which is so important these days when we're all, uh, or many of us, especially, uh, sort of chronically ill and disabled folks are um, pretty isolated. Um, mm -hmm. and so I, I really appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for, for being a guest, but also being willing to um, kind of speak so openly about your, the experience of your body in such a direct way. Um, I think it's, well, I know actually, from from hearing from listeners that 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 is so in and of itself can just be so helpful and so refreshing and and you know I don't want to use this I don't want to overuse this word but it can be very healing right just to mm -hmm. to really address the body and the body's experience um and listen to it and um I hope you felt listened to today and and thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for creating this space. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for your insightful questions. Because I've done a lot of interviews and there are certain interviewers who just like list the same like questions over and over again about <laughs> like 
what are your inspirations you know like those same interview questions and i really uh, appreciated this uh, conversation because i got to delve into a lot of topics that i don't normally get to delve into and you created a really um warm uh space for me and a safe space for me to be open so oh. i thank you and i appreciate you i appreciate you too thank you Maybe.